Who is the most important worker in a free society, a civilized society? It's the carpenter or the stone worker here in Mexico, the albanil, because they make a house for a human being to live in. The next important is the artist who makes a house for the soul or the alma to live in. This is Studio Confessions, the art and wellness podcast. Listen in as artists and culture makers come clean to share their journey and tell us what moves them. Let me share my wax poetic monologues and point of view to welcome inspiration and live a more beautiful life. That's right, I said beautiful. Welcome to the studio. I'm glad you're here. How are you? Good. (laughs) And yourself? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for sitting with me and inviting me into your space. It's my pleasure, Luis. So where are we? We're in Merida, Yucatan. Yes, we are. Yeah. We call it Paraíso, Paradise. It really is. And I'm almost self-conscious about saying that because I don't want others to come. I, I know. <laughs> well, no, the, the more the merrier. That's the so heck. true. That's so true. The, uh, the town used to have 300,000 people. Now it's over a million and more coming. But uh, it's gotten better and better, especially as a, uh, an artist, because the Yucatecan and the people that, uh, uh, that live here in, uh, in Merida, the sort of educated uh, class out of the, say, 500,000, was only about um, four or 5,000 people that you know, and the rest were educated in a different way. You know, obviously they were in the villages and they knew a thousand times more than us how to live out there in the uh, villages. But art was appreciated by them. Uh, in the city, uh, even though we had a lot of uh, uh, galleries opening up over the years, public galleries, not private galleries, um, and uh, lots of attendance, there was very small amount of sales. And the sales only were between relatives, you know. Sure. And, um, but with this whole new big flux of people coming from Mexico City and Monterey and Guadalajara and the United States and Canada and Europe, uh, they're coming because they have found out that Medida is the center of Cultura de Latino America. <laughs> this is kind of an odd thing, <laughs> name to put on uh, Merida, which probably in the end is disastrous. <laughs> but it's kind of palpable, right? You do feel it walking down the street. And you do, because we made this place, uh, we, made, we turned Merida with the help of a, a governor named Severo Pacheco and Esma Basan, who was a cultural minister, you know, in the uh, late 80s, early 90s turned Merida into a a cultural epicenter of Mexico, really, because we opened up galleries after galleries, public galleries with people attending them, and uh, there would be an exhibition, uh, an opening every single week. You know, uh, you could go and have your wine and botanas, you know, and it just got bigger and bigger. And then people from outside of Merida, who we invited in uh, to exhibit, you know, they would tell their friends, people from New York would tell, the, then there was a newspaper article in New York uh, Magazine, I think it was, and Merida is like a strange place, an incredible <laughs> place for art. Everything was for art, art, art. And they put culture in there too, uh, so sort of 
connects the two things. And uh, it just kept growing and people began coming here expecting that that's what they're going to find. And so as a result, as an artist, the people who are coming, you, you know, and coming right into the city, you know, normally you would have to go find somewhere that could be like, how are you going to do it as an artist? You're going to go to New York and then you're going to fly to Colorado, and then you're going to fly to Los Angeles and you're going to go, you know, you have to go all over the whole United States and, and Canada and, and Europe to find these people, but they're yeah. all coming here. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, and all Mexicans that are uh, involved and interested and have your money to spend are coming into uh, Yucatan. So here's our artists and they're buying things. That's incredible. Now you've been here since the 70s, is that right? I arrived in uh, 1972 the first time. How, what brought you here? It was sort of a crazy little uh, program I saw when I was nine years old called A Family Affair with God. Sebastian Cabot and uh, uh, two little kids, Buffy and Tuppy, I don't know, I don't remember their names. And uh, I think Brian O'Keefe was the father and the mother had died. The father was a widower and he had these two kids and he would leave to his job, which was sort of a mysterious place. And uh, then the half hour comedy was between what the kids did, you know, and Sebastian Cabot. But then he would call the father and say, how are the kids doing, you know, and he would report. And he went to this place uh, called Yucatan, and there was jungle and rain. Well, there's no jungle, but uh, it looked pretty interesting. <laughs> and I've always been a visual, audio uh, uh, kind of a person. Uh, sounds like those sounds that we just left the buses and everything going by. They don't bother me. I I, I know the uh, certain buses by the sound of the engine, sure. and you know they don't bother me. And also uh, visually, obviously, because I'm. Uh, visual artist, and the sound of Yucatan, but the way they said it was Yucatan, you know, the way the Yucatecan says it is Yucatan, the accent at the end. But I saw that word, the um, spelling uh, on another occasion with that Y, and I heard the word Yucatan, and then when I was about, I don't know, 20 or something, two or three or four, I uh, thought, I've been, have an apartment in Paris, you know, uh, and I go back and forth uh, <laughs> every weekend, practically in the, when I was in university. Uh, and uh, what other place uh, out of Europe or uh, uh, that whole area uh, do I want to explore? And that popped into my head, the word. Uh, in fact, we went to, uh, went to an agency to say, I want to go to uh, Yucatan. And then he said, uh, I think it's in South America, near Chile. And I said, yeah, I think you might be right, because we want to sound like an idiot. I don't know where it was. <clears throat> so then he tried to find it on a map. He couldn't find it. So we called another agency. And then they uh, said, no, no, I think it's uh, near Tijuana. <laughs> so they brought us up to Tijuana. We still couldn't find the frigging place. And then they says, uh, called another agency, because there was no Cancun or anything. And, uh, he said, I think it's a, a, a city uh, near the southern part of Mexico. And then we looked and saw the Yucatan Peninsula, then Campeche, Yucatan, and uh, uh, Quintana Roo. 
That's where I want to go. And what did you find when you arrived? There wasn't much difference between then and now wow. down, downtown, Luis. Downtown, you couldn't get any more cars, you couldn't get any more people into downtown. You know, the, so it looks just the same. You know, the, the uh, kind of stores are basically all the same. The whole downtown services has always uh, been the uh, proletariat class, the Mayan villagers, you know, coming in with their food. It, people uh, buy their food daily downtown, so it's full of food, you know, people. You know, uh, they're purchasing food for one or two days. So then there's all the stores uh, that, uh, not the stores you see in the commercial shopping center just a few miles from here, you know, like the Gap and the, uh, I don't know what else is up there because I don't go there. But you see the regular Tres Hermanos shoe stores and, you know, the small uh, uh, tiendas, small hardware stores. And they're all, it's all the same. It's the same, yeah. you know. Uh, the difference is that they just recently narrowed the streets with flowers and bushes. That's all recent, but basically it was the same. Now, leaving downtown and heading north, oh my, uh, it's gotten gigantic. and uh, It looks like you're in Canada or the United States. It really does, uh, doesn't it? Yeah, it's like uh, the houses are gigantic and the way people move, you don't see anybody walking. You don't see anybody walking. I noticed that, I noticed that. You're American, is that right? Uh-huh. Can you from, tell me a little bit about your, your upbringing? Sure, I was, uh, um, my mother and father are Greek, and uh, I was born in Long Beach, California. And uh, my father had come over, uh, he was born in Greece, my mother was born in the US. And he had, uh, actually my father was born in the US, and the next week, was taken to Greece. And he lived in Greece until he was 17. And then when, uh, uh, if he turns 17, he has to go into the Greek army and he loses his US citizenship. So at 17, his father sent him to the uh, 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 United States, the Boston area. So I grew up in California, uh, only speaking Greek. It was difficult when I got to about, um, well, first grade, when everybody spoke English, and I'm being Greek, you know, <laughs> wasn't very many people to talk to. <laughs> do, you still, do you still speak Greek? Yes, but I've forgotten a lot of it. But uh, so I grew up in a Greek family with like Greek traditions, very close, very much like Mexican uh, traditions. And uh, I had a funny time in school because I was always behind, but. It was a visual and uh, listening, so I would uh, run into problems trying to read a book, for example, history, or, and I would run into problems if it came to uh, English grammar, you know, uh, but if you showed me, I have a biology and chemistry degree, if you showed me anything mathematical or anything uh, like what has to do with biology or stuff I can see, you know, I excelled, so I do not badly, but not. I wouldn't excel in uh, uh, many of the classes, but I would in uh, the science classes. And then one year I'd be in because of, during this time they would have the smart classes, 
and the stupid classes. Oh my I would go into the stupid class because they'd think I was stupid. And then I would go to the smart classes, and then I would do something to get me back into the stupid class. And I was bounced back and forth sure. until I was graduating from high school. And uh, the counselor, I said, he said, what do you want to do? You know, now heading into college, or you can't get into college, he goes to me. <laughs> I see. So that ruins my chances of what I want to do. He goes, well, what do you want to do? I said, I would like to be a doctor. He puts his hands to his face, we're on radio, puts his hands to his face up by his forehead, and then he wipes it down his face and shakes his head at the same time and says, you'll never be a doctor. I thought, well, that's too bad. You know? <laughs> and then I finally got into university and I got uh, summa cum laude. <laughs> <laughs> all straight A's and science and mathematics. It was too funny. Mathematics was very easy for me. You know, there were classes where it was a big joke to see if I would miss one question. And then I uh, graduated uh, and went to Rhode Island School of Design where I got my master's in art. What gave you that impetus to study art? Well, I started uh, when I was 18 photographing. And I ran to a guy, uh, Ken, uh, uh, who... Uh, um, uh, Ken Sharp, and he was about four or five years older than me, and he was interested in photography as an art form. And so I ran into him, and uh, he kind of took me under his wing and you know helped me explain the, uh, the what is art form, you know, what is fine art photography. You know, everybody has lots of definitions about it. Some people hate the sound of fine art photography. You know. Uh, uh, and so I began photographing uh, when I was in the university, and uh, I loved it. Uh, in the, uh, under his tutelage, you know, I uh, found a little voice and began uh, making portfolios, uh, not specifically for anybody, but I made portfolios, and then everybody knew. I had uh, these photographs and I would sell them for $5 each and uh, I would buy more paper, I had a dark room and I just kept on going with it as I was uh, uh, going through school and became very well uh, known, became an editor of the paper and uh, if a person can't write, uh, I can now, but you know, somehow managed to uh, become editor of the paper and um, uh, put a lot of photographs in there, and uh, got the first male nude photograph centerfold, okay. which closed the paper down. <laughs> <laughs> Who was it on? Yeah, a guy named Ben, he came in and said, you know, how come there's always uh, females in centerfold? So I always see, like, I said, well, you're probably looking at, you know, uh, men's magazines that like women, and so you say, well, how come there can't be a man? I said, okay, hop up on this uh, desk and take your clothes off, so he did. And, uh, and we took a, uh, we used to get ticker tapes. And I, so I put this ticker tape uh, across the important parts, so it sort of blurred it out a little bit. And we took a picture of it and then we printed it in the centerfold of the newspaper, which is like a full-size newspaper. The president of the school called me and closed down the, uh, the newspaper. And then uh, I, I had to get a lawyer and open it. <laughs> How glorious is that? Wow. Then it was the first time that, that uh, I used, I was writing an editorial on the Vietnam War and I used the word fuck. 
That closed down the newspaper again. He goes, what is going on over there? <laughs> I go, it's just a, a word, you know. It's worse to get a bullet through you than to, to see a word. You're sitting here, you're only seeing a word and getting nervous. Uh, Keegan, whose name was President Keegan. I said, go to Vietnam and have a bullet come through you. And uh, what's worse, a, a word like that or a bullet going through your heart? <laughs> You mentioned uh, Vietnam. You uh -huh. were in the military, correct? Yes. The time came. I got my, um, it's called a 1A. You had to go in. And you're going to go in like within a week or two or three weeks. But you had 10 days to choose another service. So I, I even though I wrote uh, heavy against the war in Vietnam in the paper and protest, and I didn't feel like... Uh, uh, I thought I was against that specific thing, and that uh, military service was part of our responsibility. And so I joined the submarine service, uh, and uh, there was an opportunity, and so I spent an extra two years in the submarine service instead of just two years going to Vietnam. Uh, and then uh, in the Navy, I continued writing uh, a paper against the war. And, eventually put me in jail for a few months at the end of my term, <laughs> trying to stop me from writing it. And, uh, did it work? Well, the, no, I kept writing it, except what did stop me was finally they moved me to San Francisco called Treasure Island, where there were my last uh, uh, three or four weeks in the Navy, which I got an honorable discharge. They didn't know what to do with me, you know, uh, um, because I wouldn't stop, and, and they said, well, he's not doing anything wrong. You know, it's just that we're asking him to stop, he won't stop, and uh, which is wrong. That's why I was in a little prison, big prison. Then I stopped because the Marines that were there, you know, had been in Vietnam, you know, and I was writing, still writing this paper on just stationary in the uh, prison, and they didn't like that. And they said they had seen, you know, friends die, and uh, you know, uh, and that I don't know. And I go, well, it's like I don't want any more of your friends to die. That's why I'm writing this, you know. And and so they uh, uh, hit me a few times. <laughs> And the last issue, because they took my paper and stationery away, and I, uh, the other prisoner on the other side of the little aisle there, he threw me a pen, and then I took the toilet paper and I wrote a little uh, uh, eight-page uh, uh, newspaper on toilet paper, being very careful. And we were laughing, the two of us, you know, at this point. And then I put the pen, like hooked it on the, uh, folded the toilet paper in like a little mini newspaper clipped the uh, pen onto the thing. And I was, the idea was I only had one customer <laughs> in front of me. I went to throw it to uh, the pen and the toilet paper to him. The pen reached him, but the toilet paper came out, fell on the uh, floor between us. We couldn't reach the toilet paper. <laughs> and the Marine guard came, looked, saw the toilet paper, and said, still writing, huh? No problem. Took my toilet paper away. That ended uh, my career as a writer. My goodness. No toilet paper in jail. I sense uh, a very present uh, sense of joy in you, in the stories you tell, in uh, your day-to-day. -day. Where does that come from? 
Well, maybe I have a, well, my father, you know, uh, was an adventurer. Jesus, uh, his uh, adventures were amazing uh, as a Greek immigrant and then the kind of things he did. And he was a very uh, good storyteller, had a good memory. And I think I uh, uh, also have a good memory and sort of adapted that idea that stories directly from people are very important you know, because if you're sitting like we are talking, you can see expressions and um, it, well, well, uh, Socrates said the downfall of man uh, is uh, uh, the written word. He's, because they had just come out with scrolls and things were written with no grammar or anything. And, and he uh, thought that the idea of of having uh, what you think written in a, a, on paper in the form of a book is going to destroy philosophy, he felt, because uh, it needed to be passed on from person to person. Mm. Now, if you tell one story once and then tell another the same story a little different, it just no, makes no difference. There's a point to the story, and it gets exaggerated and changed, and but it's the, it's the exchange and, you know, that two humans uh, uh, have, like what we're doing right now. It's, uh, I'm doing most of the talking, you know, but uh, we're having an exchange, you know, and the, the people listening can't see my expression, but maybe can at least hear, uh, hear my voice and a human being's voice. So when I, I love reading, uh, and I read a lot of books, you know, but you have to be careful, you know, when you're reading a, a book because there's no human behind it that you can, there's no human behind it, it's a bunch of letters, you know, on a page, you know, so you read it. it Bring your own context. Yeah, your own context, and you can get good at it, and, you know, you can pull out things and use, you know, uh, I read about Marcus Aurelius recently in the Stoics, in his book called The Meditations, but it's not a book, it was things he wrote that nobody was really supposed to read to try to help him with his Stoic, you know, uh, you know path, you know, and so I picked out one thing, <laughs> like, it says every day you, you will run into thieves and liars, and of course, remember, as he's writing it, and he's the emperor of Rome, so he runs into them. People want to change your uh, position, you know, your, uh, your philosophy, and you know, change your morals and your ethics, and he goes, uh, you have to be aware of them, and you have to deal with them one at a time, like the gentleman uh, who came in uh, earlier today. Yeah, and um, uh, he says, and you're, you're, uh, uh, what you have to do is start in the morning, <laughs> go through them like a pinball game, you know, boink, 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 and then end up, you know, with the same philosophy at the end of the day. Maybe if you can, make it a little better, and if you can uh, help people on the way. And so that stoic philosophy, uh, it keeps me uh, sort of with my 
you know, memories and stories and ideas. It keeps me uh, kind of joyful through everything, even when I was in the prison, you know. I still was uh, happy. My mother said, uh, this kid, you can put him down anywhere and he's uh, happy. You don't need to give him anything. Uh, you know. This podcast is sponsored by me and Collage Dream. Visit collagedream.com to get your monthly subscription on collage kits filled with curated ephemera and collage material from my book hoardings, New York City bookstores, and my travels. You get everything you need, from adhesive to cardboard, confetti, to a prompt to get you started, or go further. And join in on a collage therapy session. Join in on a group or schedule a private session and really get your thoughts in order and your creativity flowing. CollageDream.com, the only door to my studio. Do you infuse your photography with this? Is this what you look for when you put your eye to a no, viewfinder? No, the photography is interesting, it's different. I never go out to photograph, you know, uh, uh, you know per se. I uh, go out and uh, many times uh, we uh, go to pueblos all over Yucatan and uh, we go, at least I do, and my friend, I've sort of, you know, let's say trained him to do it too. He's not like me at all, but um, he tries this too. Uh, and he's doing a good job, I think, of it. Uh, I go out to try to learn something, you know, and to uh, see new people and see new, like, you know, things and, and uh, explore. And so I uh, uh, will sense a, uh, a situation and then uh, immerse myself into it with people, with the camera as a secondary, tertiary uh, uh, item. And then if the moment uh, arrives and uh, there is something that is uh, so, like, is important in the contact, every, uh, practically every contact with a human being is important, and I think I can reproduce it with a photograph, then I will uh, take the picture, or I, will, I always ask them if it's a portrait, if I can uh, make a photograph of them. But by that time, we've already been discussing things, and they always say yes, you know, uh, always uh, say yes. Very rare uh, does anyone say no, but it's never going, can I take a picture? You know, and uh, uh, I never do that. Just go up to a person or not tell the person I'm taking a picture because it's going to be something I use in my life, you know, uh, as an explanation of what I'm thinking. I'm going to make a, a picture of the person, I'm going to bring it and put it in the computer, my new dark room, uh, edit it, and then uh, look at it intellectually now and decide what it is I want to say what little sentiment I want to express. Intellectually, apply what I need to do to make an image of the sentiment that I was feeling, even if it was different and I changed it a little along the path to finally making an image. So then I have an image, then I go and do it again and again and again and again, keep on. You said your new darkroom. Can you tell me a little bit about your transition between 
the darkroom and using the computer? Uh -huh. Was that a difficult transition for you? No, not really. <clears throat> Some people the, make a huge fuss about that. I know they do. I don't know why. Uh, because uh, it was easy for me because my idea was <clears throat> to uh, 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 is to get the my uh, my idea out on an image so that if anybody wants to see it, I don't do it for other people, but if anybody else wants to see it, you know, uh, they can maybe get the same, uh, get the same feeling. We were in dark rooms. I became a very good printer, excellent, expert printer, you know, uh, uh, starting from exposing the film, developing the film, printing the film, it's all very, very uh, important. Uh, and then uh, the digital part came in, uh, and arrived, and I thought, well, I'm going to experiment. I bought a cheap camera. I took some pictures. I didn't like, uh, didn't like it. Uh, I, somebody told me about Photoshop. You know, when Photoshop gets like such a nasty uh, concept, you know, concept now, like, oh, it's Photoshop. Well, yeah, what do you think? You think that when you were taking pictures with negative, that you just took a picture and gave it to CVS, and then bingo, they made a beautiful picture? No, it takes a lot of work to get a beautiful print, uh, and you have to do your own developing, your own printing, you know, selection of paper, dodging and burning to finally get a beautiful print. They don't just come out of the camera that way. So now, um, uh, at the beginning, digital was a little difficult. Somebody told me about Photoshop. Now I had to learn Photoshop, but I learned over a period of time, probably six months. And then I noticed, uh, um, that you could edit the uh, photograph in a better way, especially if you have on 35 millimeter a lot of times, you know, you have different situations, but uh, on the same roll of 36 uh, uh, images, and I used to roll 45, 48, hand roll them, and they should be developed in a different kind of a way. Each, you know, some images need to be underdeveloped, some need to be overdeveloped. You know, but you, you couldn't do it. You had to find a medium uh, or select according to what uh, you like that's on the film. Uh, but with uh, digital, you have a chance to, uh, to work on each photograph individually, and you have a chance to, you know, if uh, uh, you have failed with the darkness in the eyes, you can go into the pupils and you can uh, bring them out. Not to trick anybody, but you know, to say like, what I'm interested in is the expression in those eyes and the face and the body and you know, you can bring it out. It becomes like a drawing almost. Yeah, right? yeah. It's, and it's, it's a magnificent, yeah. you know. Now, I don't go into Photoshop and do like bizarre, crazy things, which are also, you know, nice if that's your, um, uh, you know, your way of expressing yourself through exaggerated changes, you know. Uh, uh, it's not my way, but uh, um, I'm very happy. And then uh, to be able to print them myself with a relatively inexpensive printer, if I want to go big, I can. You know, uh, uh, give them a digital image, they can make it gigantic, it's just like I would want it. So it really has uh, become a, a, a quite a beautiful medium, the digital print, yeah, as far fluid, as I'm concerned. Right? Yeah. It's fluid production. Yeah, That's like great. I can make photogravures, which nobody here in Yucatan can do.
starting with jello that you buy at the market. You know, I can make a complicated photogravure on a copper plate, a beautiful uh, thing. But, but it's long, it's tedious, and then just ask yourself, why am I doing this? Oh, well, because I want something special. No, I don't work like that. I right. want an image about something in my life because I am a, 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 the, in a civilized society that under laws, and if it's, you're free, if the law says you are a free human being, I'm the embodiment of freedom. You know, uh, for the society, I make images, you know, uh, as a free human being. You know, and some of them are nice, pretty little images. Some of them are not so nice. Some of them are hard-hitting. Put in a dictator, they're going to get rid of all the, uh, uh, they'll take the artisans and the nice photographers, you know, and they'll guard them and adore them. They'll get rid of, like in Cuba, all of the hard-hitting, free of, you know, uh, of thought uh, people, people that express themselves according to how their society is like treating them. They'll get rid of them, put them in jail, or execute them. I mean, that's how powerful uh, art uh, is uh, when you look at it as the embodiment of freedom. Do you have an albanil, who, a stone worker who makes a house for people to live in? You have an artist who is the embodiment of freedom of thought inside the society who makes a house for uh, your soul you know, uh, to live in, your heart to live in. You know, uh, that's what artists is, uh, I think. Well, you're, you're giving me chills here. That, yeah. that sounds amazing. Yeah, I love that. Embodiment yeah. of freedom. That's yes. amazing. I am really taken away and moved by your space. You have a beautiful space here in Merida, and it is chock full of images, not only photography, but paintings and prints. How did this come about? You know, because I think a lot of artists uh, think about their studio mm -hmm. practice, mm -hmm. but they don't really think about having a storefront or, or yeah. inviting people in. You're, you have something that's very in, uh, welcoming. Uh, yes. How did, how, how did that come about? Well, you have to, uh, like my father, he had restaurants, you know, and uh, he always said that the customer is the most important uh, uh, um, Item, you know, if you, uh, uh, but I think he, he says customer, but you know, person, the person is the most important. Uh, when you get a little intellectual, go past my uh, father, says the customer is the most important. And so you think about that as an artist, you know, how am I going to treat these people that now have to exchange money because this is the level that we're going to be dealing with. I might, uh, and I have uh, changed a photograph for a haircut, or changed a photograph for food, or changed, I had one restaurant and I would eat all month, and then at the end of the month, a, a restaurant gave me a bill, and then I had uh, etchings, and I gave them etchings, we agreed each etching was $15, and I had, uh, I ate, you know, $125 worth of food that month, and then he would uh, go through and take $125 worth of etchings. But it doesn't work every time. You know, so you have to think about your uh, people that you're going to be trying to 
um, show these to and so you open up a storefront you make it appealing you know we have coffee you know I always try to uh, give them something uh, if we have to sit down and the, the, their uh, uh, spend a little amount of time uh, on looking at the art I always try to uh, give them something and I have a beautiful set of two prints uh, that with two poems, one by me, one by uh, Argentine, that I uh, uh, give them, dedicate it to them, sign them, they're real prints, and they always leave with something uh, in their hands. And then they will tell other people, they'll come back, you know, uh, they, uh, it just is good business practice. It's also a good time to say your last name, that means Zeus was the god of war. His last name was Exenius, the god of hospitality. And they thought these living gods that you couldn't go and kill somebody if you didn't know how to take care of somebody. See, so uh, that was the balance. They always had these dipoles uh, left, right, up, down, hot, cold. War and hospitality. Uh, so my my last name X E N I O S uh, is the means the a distant flower or you know uh, uh, like the take care person who takes care he's from afar and takes care of you. Uh, wow. Yeah. And that's kind of the embodiment of who you are. He comes from the bar yeah, and takes yeah. care of people. That's amazing. <laughs> it's basic, yeah. Let's talk about destiny. My goodness. Now, in, in thinking about all of these years that you've been an artist, what's been a what's been a lesson that has really carried you across? Do you think? Well, um, one thing that going back is sort of like covers your new question and the last question is cost you know, how do you put a price on your work? Very difficult uh, for many people, but for me Monumental. it was simple. Yeah, it was simple, and when I was like 26, 25, I came up with the idea. Who is, in my estimation, the most important uh, uh, worker in a, a free society, a civilized society, it's the carpenter or the uh, stone worker here in Mexico, the albanil stone worker, because they make a house, you know, for a human being to live in, as I had mentioned before. The next important is the artist who makes a house for the uh, soul or uh, the alma, the, uh, you know, the, uh, your heart to live in. Uh, uh, so why should I make any more money than the uh, carpenter or the uh, stone worker? So if I'm in the U.S., I do this calculation. Uh, if I'm in Mexico, I do this calculation. I just take the amount of money they pay a stone worker here in Mexico and then uh, uh, get his uh, a weekly salary divided into a six because they work six days and then there's how much uh, for one day's work he gets or she gets i don't know of any female stone workers but there must be one i'm sure there are <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then uh, i take my work 
And then, well, I have to pay for a plane flight, I have to go, it takes weeks, you know, go to Afghanistan, photograph, I take a lot of photographs, I have to then select them. So I can get an idea of uh, uh, my daily or uh, uh, weekly um, uh, uh, number of hours that I have worked, and then uh, divide them by the number of pictures, and then I assign the, uh, a legitimate, like, uh, um, hourly wage for this uh, uh, image. I get pretty close. I must be close because I sell an awful lot of them, enough to sustain me my whole life. But that brings the image, for example, here in Mexico, a, uh, a, uh, an etching, down, I sell them in my gallery here for 300 pesos, which my friends who are etchers say, oh, you know, 300 pesos is only $15, because they relate everything to dollars. Because my etchings, you know, I sell and are $150, $160. I said, well, you are uh, overpriced. <laughs> you know, I'm not an etcher, but I know that this person is overpriced. How many, I ask uh, my friend uh, Mark, how many etchings have you uh, sold this year? He had sold two. You know, I sold 1,874 etchings in one year at $15 each. So who must be doing this right? You know, uh, you that sells two for $150, $300, or me for calculated. You know, it's, it makes sense. Now it's accessible to uh, uh, everybody. You know, and uh, well, a young girl came in a couple days ago this is what I mean by the clients. And she was a young Mayan woman from a village and she had the, the nerve to come into this gallery, which is very unusual. You know, and she looked at them and then she said she really liked this picture uh, and how much was it? And I said, told her the price, you know, uh, and then she said, uh, well, you know, I, you know, maybe someday I will be able to uh, buy it. I said, no, there's no someday. You know, so I took the picture, wrapped it, gave it to her and said, when that day comes, you can uh, come and give me the money, but between now and that day, and I've done this a lot of times, this has to stay in your house in front of you and live with you. You know, it shouldn't be with me. And so she left so happy and, uh, well, she's probably gonna tell 50 people, you know, what happened to her uh, at this art gallery. And those 50 people are gonna be thinking about the art gallery, maybe not mine, but it's going to be a little more information about artists. And that's amazing. That's important. That. I mean, yeah. it's so important. I think also we're kind of precious about our work as artists, and we're kind—you of, know—we're taught to mm -hmm. overprice so we can value ourselves. You think it's a value? The value is in being an artist. It's way more. Uh, like I wake up every day. I never. My friends say. Well, you know, I've been working, I have all this money, I'm so unhappy, and I, my wife, she hates me, and my kids don't want to talk to me. Blah, blah. I, I says, guess what? I wake up every single day happy with what I do. I have, like, things uh, that fall apart sometimes, but that's the value of, of being an artist and loving what you do and doing it uh, every day. And... Thank you so much for sitting with me. This is, I mean, I, that is, oh, that, that's why I'm here to talk to you. You yeah. have given me quite an education. <laughs> <laughs>
before I let you go, can you tell me what are some of the things that keep you inspired, keep you going? It sounds like everything, but yeah, anything specific? Well, it's, uh, I, I was uh, actually talking with somebody a few days ago in their little porch where I've been coffee. And we have a mutual friend, and I was saying to uh, this uh, friend of mine, I said, it's very important to, uh, to have a sense of awe. As a people, I've noticed the uh, many, many people uh, around me, um, and especially if they seem to be a little miserable, you know, these people have no sense of awe. You know, that there are things in the world that we don't know about, and there's plenty of them. So when you, uh, when I go out to a village, you know, I have this sense of awe for the tiniest thing. Somebody could give me like a lollipop and I put it in my mouth and I said, man, is this thing delicious? You know, it's like, wow, you know. <laughs> this sense of awe, like Confucius said, is very important to know that, you know, you are a part of the universe, but there's so much more out there. You know, and that if you pretend like nothing can uh, phase you, nothing uh, uh, is like out of your, uh, like uh, you just know all everything and sometimes you pretend so that you don't look like you don't know about this or you're lost with a sense of awe about everything, you know, you never uh, need inspiration. I mean, because it's all out there. You know, and you pass through all of this and you're just amazed. You know, amazed at this, amazed at that, and just take your camera and take a picture of what you're amazed at. And you, know, you never ever uh, need to be, I've never had to be inspired really. That's kind of an odd word uh, to me. Uh, Absolutely. But with that, and if you think about it with a sense of awe, you never need to be inspired because your life is your, uh, are your pictures. Well, yeah. thank you, Andrew. Thank you for leaving me with a sense of awe. Oh, good, yeah. I appreciate your Maintain time. it, yeah. <laughs> Ciao. Yes, nos vemos. Bye. <laughs> That's it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please leave a review on iTunes. It goes a long way. Follow me on Instagram at Art Engineer and send me your email or follow the show at StuCon Podcast. Please share this episode with anyone who might benefit from this conversation. Remember, you are the flame that can ignite a thousand candles. I am Luis Martin, the Art Engineer, sharing with you what moves me.